0: Hey guys, Jack here. Before we get to our awesome episode with today's guest, Matt Berkey, uh, I'm super excited to let you guys know that we have a new website. We've already talked a lot about what's on that website, you know, including some of our uh, weekly blog series, including the podcast breakdown, in which we use software to try and answer more concretely the questions brought up in each week's episode. Uh, we've talked about that, but what we didn't mention was that our website was super, super slow. For those of you who have been to our website, you probably figured that out. Good news, we now have a different website provider, uh, and our website is sleeker and much, much faster. So, if you haven't been to the website, please head on over, justhandspoker.com. And if you've been to the website, but we're sick of waiting for the articles to load, good news, uh, we fixed that. Head over now. All right, uh, enjoy the episode.
1: So... As we kind of transition into the more interviewee portion, um, is there anything you'd like to, to plug? Any any academies that come to mind?
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh about a year ago I started doing uh in a three day long uh like camp like setting. So basically uh it's called Solve for the Academy. Um our next one coming up is in December, and then we're gonna run five or six of them in two thousand seventeen. Uh, It's basically just like a lot of this only not specific to hand history. So we deal far more with uh, conceptualizing like why it is we do what we do at the table, why our opponents are doing what they do at the table. And we build off of that into kind of creating like as much of a bulletproof strategy as we can. And when I say bulletproof, I mean like the foundations of a strong strategy where we can start to think our way through through hands uh, from a lot of different perspectives, rather than just trying to create uh, like the nuts and bolts of something we can always default to. I feel like the majority of the strategies that people are employing right now have no room for uh, like actual in-game adjustments and for uh, accumulated information. And particularly in the live sense information accumulation is probably significantly more profitable than actually being able to take crisp lines and, uh, you know, play, I guess, better than your opponents. Uh, that information is just going to be worth way more to you than taking a balanced line in certain spots.
0: So Matt, just then when you were talking about the software Y Academy and, Talking specifically about live poker uh, and how in live poker the ability to accumulate information uh, is so much more valuable. I, I agree with that, but it, I think in some ways it's a little counterintuitive because uh, when you're playing live, you're seeing you know far fewer hands uh, than when you're playing online, and you can collect information from a HUD. And in terms of evaluating player strategies, you can have a much more thorough you know mathematical understanding playing online uh, at least in terms of accumulating mathematical evidence but I agree that playing live there's a lot more information to be gained uh, sort of counter to what you would expect I know in the low stakes games it just has to do with uh, people playing so poorly and so predictably that if you pay attention you can you can learn details in people's games that you can just exploit a lot more than anything you could get from a HUD. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. And maybe if you think there's differences between high stakes games and lower stakes games, or if it's sort of the same deal, or if there's things I'm missing which uh, turn these live games, you know, the information becomes much more valuable in those settings compared to, you know, online or potentially tournaments.
2: Sure. So. Uh, the big difference between live and online when it comes to information accumulation is that online, the edges are much more minuscule, right? So uh, we're trying to apply a very small edge or capitalize on very small mistakes over the course of tens of thousands of hands. And that's going to result in significant amount of money. Volume is greatly disproportionate to time put in. So... It behooves everybody, from the best player to the worst, to be implementing some sort of strategy that, at the very least, protects your mistakes, if not eliminates them completely. Live is very different. Uh, Time greatly uh, exceeds the amount of hands that we're going to be able to put in. So since each hand, in and of itself, is uh, significantly more valuable than each hand would be online... The mistakes are much larger, and uh, people just aren't really doing anything to cover their tracks, right? So when you're able to gain, uh, you know, in, in the simplest terms of what people romanticize live poker about is say a tell. You pick up on a breathing tell of somebody, or or a nervous twitch, or whatever. It's thought that that tell against them is invaluable un- until they figure it out and do something about it, right? Because it literally can get you to binary spots where it's like ultimately they have it or they don't, and you need to make the correct decision, and you have this advantage of a weighted coin where your opponent is just divulging which end of the spectrum they're on right so that's a very simple black and white uh, example if you extrapolate it out to actual information based on range uh range assessing and and uh equating actions and lines with uh hand strength or range strength then you can create a counter strategy that will maximize profitability against the opponent that you have that you've garnered this information on no matter how good bad or indifferent they may be
0: Hmm. so you know in these high stakes games like uh well well, real quick, I I think it's interesting, you know, part of what you're saying about the whole concept of playing a GTO strategy almost doesn't work in live poker just because of the time constraints. So in some ways, you know, other than at the very highest stakes, that that strategy is almost flawed just in the sense that your win rate is just not really going to be worth your time. So it's almost like that type of strategy can only exist online just from a pure like how many hands are you gonna see I mean does that register as true with you or uh,
2: yes not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily because of that though it's it's more so necessarily because the exploits that are being presented in a live venue are just so vast that you're sacrificing way too much by attempting to protect your own ranges and, and uh, remain balanced and things like that. Basically, like nobody's running a HUD. So uh, the time constraints are a massive, a massive aspect about it, right? Like You're, you're really not going to ever realize the long term without there being natural adjustments just due to uh, time and thought and, and evolution of the game. But on top of that, there's no HUD. So perhaps if we were running some sort of like live HUD where we could extrapolate information and understand that like so-and-so is making a huge mistake in the small blind by defending too widely or not doing this, then the exploits become even more clear and we're going to divulge a strategy around that. Now, if the counter to that is them understanding like, oh, according to my HUD, I'm doing this that and the other from the small blind and it's a big mistake i'm gonna have to adjust that in my strategy uh you know basically like if if everybody was able to data mine and start to make corrective assumptions then you'd see a lot closer to what you see online um but the game would just die due to uh the inability to apply over over volume right Um, the amount of time it would take to ever realize your your edge once it once it grew to be that small would just not be worth anybody's time or effort and live poker would just cease to exist. But none of that is really ever, at least in the, in the near future, as far as we can see likely to happen. And it doesn't really behoove any of the gambling establishments to allow it to happen either. So, Uh, I think, like, when you combine the fact that it's not the most profitable strategy you can employ alongside with the human fallibility of it all and the fact that nobody's applying it anywhere near perfectly or optimally as as is, you find yourself basically with just a slightly stronger version of the current bluff-catching strategy. And for the best in the game, they're going to just feast upon that. So, like, yeah, you may be able to neutralize better players in the sense that you're not losing the maximum against them. But you're also like not doing anything that is putting them in tough spots that would force them to adjust to you either. So you stand no chance of ever profiting off of it.
0: Right. I mean, unless people are going to over adjust to a bluff catching strategy.
2: Which is just really tough to do, right? Yeah. You know, like what's an over adjustment to somebody who bluff catches too much? you just, than checking too often yourself. I mean, that, well, no,
0: that's... I'm saying like a bluff catching strategy would be profitable if you thought that people were going to turn around and just like try and apply a ton of pressure with a really wide range. Oh yeah, uh, it was it yeah. was
2: the strategy to employ in 2006, right when everybody finally had read Super System and started to digest it. Uh, you know, they understood that. Oh, I could just go ape shit with my nut flush draws, and it's like if you're the person on the other end, it's just like oh, I just get to check call all the time because people are going crazy with draws, and they're not as confident to go nuts with top pair no kicker. But that's not the case anymore. Like right, you know people's ranges have widened uh, appropriately, but their their like hyper aggressive range has continually shrunk.
0: Yeah, so I guess what you're saying, and I, I think I agree with, is that people are just playing really well against the bluff-catching strategy, and you're just leaving a lot of money on the table uh, by settling with that.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know that people are playing well against the bluff-catching strategy because I think almost everybody's playing it. Um, I think that like, the guys who are good at GTO are playing really well against the bluff-catching strategy right because they're doing everything that the bluff catcher is doing only more precisely and more profitably so they're going to make a fair amount of money off of the field um and it's just going to like be a pecking order the better you're able to apply this type of strategy whether it's you know being a crisp gtoer at the top or uh somebody who just like is a complete station at the bottom everything that falls in between will dictate uh, how profitable you are against the field. The monkey wrench is when a guy like me gets thrown into the game who just, as far as the eye can see, is a batshit crazy maniac. But, in all reality, it's I've just created a strategy that hyper-exploits uh, this, like, passive check-calling
0: style. Right. I mean, I, I now I, I think I understand better what you're saying. You know, because the so let's say the GTO bluff catcher can't be exploited by definition. But he, that person is not necessarily, or is definitely not who you're talking about.
2: I mean, I still am because, like, I don't agree that they can't be exploited, obviously. It, by definition, yes, but, like, we're nowhere near achieving that yet. Right. So, so like, yeah, they can't be exploited by a lesser bluff catcher. But so there are certain, certainly strategies that can exploit them.
0: So at first, I thought you were saying that even the GTO bluff catcher is leaving money on the table because they're just not choosing the best strategy for the game. And I think you would probably stand by that, but I think what I I didn't realize you were also saying is that, well, that bluff catcher is not anywhere near GTO and you know, I'm also taking advantage of that player.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I feel very confident in that. And a lot of it just also has to do with um, the way the variables change live. So, when you start to add deeper stacks, when you start to be playing in full ring games rather than six max the majority of the time, like these are all difficult variables for g t o to solve i mean
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know the closest we've come so far is uh the the Carnegie Mellon bot that kind of sort of held its own for a short period of time against the world's best, but <laughs> it was a very simple dynamic right it was Heads up, 100 big blind poker. And that's just nowhere near what we're viewing in the live venue. So, uh, as these variables increase, so do uh, the leverage points and the thresholds of pain. Uh, you know, a lot of people are sitting with more money than they're comfortable with, in spite of the fact that it may be within bankroll requirements, right? right. And comfort doesn't necessarily mean you're ability to risk it means your ability to maneuver as well Mm -hmm. so there's there's plenty of people who are sitting with three four five hundred big blinds that can afford it but can't strategically maneuver that stack it's too deep it's too complex for them they put themselves in too many difficult spots and counter to that there are a lot of people who are sitting four or five hundred big blinds deep that are comfortable playing those stacks but financially can't afford to risk it, and all of those will create points throughout the course of a hand, a session, whatever, where they're simply being leveraged by their stack and the the psychological uh, attachment to risk that comes with that stack.
0: Hmm. It, it, yeah, well, it's also interesting I, that I think a lot of probably the best bluff catchers are just exponentially more comfortable with 100 bigs and 400 bigs
1: sure yeah matt how you know how common is this in like different stakes you think because i um in a recent podcast recording you know i was kind of talking with jack about how you know even at like a 2-5 game i'm playing with people that are millionaires or you know making six figures and like they get scared shitless if they have to like do what they perceive as something risky with 500 bucks
2: basically like as a society we're very risk conservative and we're kind of taught to be uh protective of the money that we accrue the money that we're risking make smart decisions etc and i think that this extrapolates throughout all states it's like you know i've played as high as anyone in the world and there are billionaires who just like still don't have the stomach to be putting in 50,000 with middle pair even though they may feel like they're being bluffed in the moment and a lot of that yeah. also comes with, like, a gap in knowledge, right? That's that's another – not only is it a hurdle to get over the concept of risking X amount of dollars with what you perceive to be the correct play, but it's also a big hurdle to get over defining what's a correct play and feeling confident enough to understand that you're right and then pulling the trigger. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the strategy that I personally put a big emphasis on and and the one that we teach at Solve for Why is it's a lot less based on card distribution and things like that. And it's more creating an edge in the points that make people most uncomfortable and understanding, like, where those leverage points are, how we can uh, use them to our advantage, as well as, like, you know, kind of adopting like a little bit of a gambler's mentality understanding that giving action receives action and that there's a big value to being the catalyst to starting a good game or making a bad game good and all the kind of like soft skills that that come into play with being a live professional
1: sounds like it'd be really valuable to a lot of people myself included so what what is this uh tv show that's going to come out of it
2: um so that's that- kind of on the back burner it's it's something that we've been in discussion with for a long time, trying to get it brought to fruition. But um, yeah, so we have uh, a more immediate project that uh, we're hoping to get launched on Poker Central in April. Uh, it basically, when I knew that I was going to play the Super High Roller Bowl, I wanted to kind of document the preparation that I planned to put in it. So I had a film crew come back to me or come back with me to Pittsburgh. Um, And basically just follow me around, uh, getting a good feel for my backstory, like where I came from, how I got to this point so far, all while also uh, recording the training process that I was putting myself through, familiarizing myself with the field, kind of like teaching myself and understanding like where the leverage points are in high rollers, uh, just in the structure alone, let alone, uh, you know, where the the big points to navigate would be uh as the field dwindled and, and things along those lines. So you know we're in the process of of editing now and we're in discussions with Poker Central. So it's it's a good project for them. It highlights their their flagship event. Um and for us it's a great way to kind of get our feet in the door and hopefully create a relationship where we can ultimately release Perhaps a web series about the Academy next year.
0: And would you, do you want me to spoil the results of the tournament or should we? Oh, you know, I don't have mind. the listeners.
2: They can Google it, I guess. It, yeah. it really doesn't <laughs> if you really to me, you're, you're welcome to, to. I mean, that's, that's not the. the
0: yeah, that's not the, point.
2: Of the. Right, right. That was just the added bonus, I guess.
0: Well, it might have been run good and it might have been a direct result of the preparation, but uh, Matt took home a nice score, so. A very, very nice score, I would say.
2: Yeah, that was... It was very helpful. (laughs) Uh,
1: so these days, do you find yourself... Like, how much are you playing poker versus kind of, you know, running running this business, producing the content? Um, I'm
2: doing a ton of content and, uh, academy-based stuff right now. Twofold. One, I want to get it right, uh... I want to make sure that I'm giving students the best product that I can offer. Um, so many guys are coming with like the mindset of wanting a gimmick. You know, they, they want me to, to just say like, oh, this is what you should do with jacks under the gun or this is how often you should three bet. You know, I think it's why the GTO thing has kind of caught on such popularity because it's all charts and numbers and quantifiable things that you could just like look at, memorize and try to employ And that's not the way I think about the game, and that's not what I'm trying to profess. Uh, We're dealing so much more in the abstract, right? Like, the biggest thing about live poker is the ability to pull puppet strings and manipulate people and the psychological warfare that goes on. And that's more in the realm that that I want to help people get uh, knowledgeable and... um, create an edge for themselves so i'm putting a lot of time and effort into really shearing up that sort of curriculum i guess and then we're also dividing off into a separate path next year where we're going to create create a upper level course for some of the higher stake players um the 5 10 10 20 guys who are looking to move up to nosebleeds and you know that's gonna be really in depth so Given the price that I'm charging and the amount of time that uh, I'm asking students to be here, I really have to like make sure that all of that stuff is very crisp and worth the time and effort, I guess. But then also, I'm just not really getting invited to the big game anymore. Uh, I've just done pretty well in the last year, and I think I may have worn out my welcome a little bit. So I'm probably going to be forced to shift more into playing high rollers in the year to come. Um, and that's something that I want to work on my own personal game before I actually like start playing $2 million worth of buy-ins, uh, over the course of 12 months.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably a worthwhile investment of your
1: time.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just don't like tournaments by comparison, but you know, I'm, I'm still a poker player first and foremost, and I need to do what's most profitable for me and these these high rollers have a lot of money and i feel like a lot of uh value to them in spite of the fact that they may appear on the surface to be you know the world's most elite players i think that there's a big subset of them that are at best break even in these fields Hmm. and that just like in my mind creates a lot of value
0: fighting words.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't mean it that way. I just... Uh, not everybody can be elite. And maybe I don't belong in that conversation. Maybe I do. But uh, I feel confident in the ones that I don't think are good enough to maintain any edge that they've possessed up until this point. And so long as that exists, that means that there's value to be had.
0: Well, if it's not going to be hard for you to get two fellow cash players to agree with you that tournament players <laughs> are not that good. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, they're good at what they do. They are. Yeah, for it sure. Doesn't doesn't always translate.
0: All right, well, we don't want to keep you from studying your push charts charts uh, <laughs> any longer.
2: Yeah, that's definitely not my strength.
0: <laughs> no, but Matt, seriously, this was, uh, to me, I think maybe the most interesting episode we've had so far so i
1: you know, really appreciate your time and your insight
0: anytime i'm glad to do it
1: yeah thanks so much matt we hope to uh you know see you uh when we're in vegas this uh this coming summer
2: yeah absolutely hit me up
1: okay of sounds good matt have a good one
2: all right guys thanks, thank man. you
1: okay bye, bye.